0: Hello and welcome to this Focus episode of How We're Wired. My name is Eva Higginbotham. I have a PhD in neuroscience and I'm the producer of this series for the Bertarelli Foundation. These Focus episodes are a chance for us to dig into more fascinating stories of our brains, how they work and how scientists are studying them. In episode 11 we looked at the neuroscience of parenthood, how our brains prepare us to bond with and care for babies and children, which, as any parent knows, can be a stressful and tiring business. But sometimes that tiredness and stress can tip over into something more sinister.
1: I'm Siobhan. I'm an English teacher at a high school, and I also have two little preschool-aged children. My name is
2: Kira Splann. I am a career and wellness coach. I have two little girls.
3: I'm Zasha. I'm founder of an AI startup and I'm also father of a three-year-old child.
4: My name's Rachel, I'm a consultant clinical psychologist that specializes in working with children and families.
3: Stress is very much a physical reaction for me. This
1: feeling of constant lack of control like over my life and my job. I was often forgetting things. Things like my key card to get into the building. Constantly worried of making mistakes.
3: I can even almost hear that my heart is racing. And it's also this this sort of antsy feeling that you need to move.
1: Feeling anxious, feeling tired, waking up early hours of the morning. And when I was with my family, I was just snapping and being short with them. There's
3: so much to do and so little time.
2: And I just lost more and more of that control to the stage where I felt Helpless and that I couldn't get it back.
0: To some of you, that might all sound very, very familiar. And that's what we're looking at this week the neuroscience of chronic stress and burnout, especially in parents. Although, as we'll hear, parent or not, anyone can be susceptible to burnout. I know towards the end of my PhD, a lot of these symptoms could have been said to apply to me, even as someone without children. Now we're going to hear especially from two people, one whose burnout episode is in the past and another who's still going through it. Meet Siobhan.
1: Teaching has always been really exhausting, but going back after the pandemic was even more challenging. So returning to school, I was carrying A lot of the stress that had gone unresolved from pregnancy and postpartum, and I was met with equal and more amounts of stress and pressure coming from students and just the pressures of the school system. Siobhan
0: teaches at an alternative high school in Canada, which caters to a diverse group of students, ranging from those who just need to up their grades a bit to get into university to a large refugee population who often had severely disrupted schooling and another vulnerable group too
1: we have a lot of kids involved in the criminal justice system so some of our students are homeless some are working in sex work some are in and out of juvenile detention and we have a lot of students with behavioral and addiction issues so there's a whole lot of complexity going on but I was able to handle it up until I wasn't. And when I couldn't sleep at night and when I was waking up first thing, worrying about my students while also balancing the concerns I had as a parent of two kids that were daycare aged and worrying about my own health, it all just was piling on. And when I felt like I really was going to explode, I decided to take a step back out of fear that if I didn't, I may actually be fired.
0: Siobhan has now been off work for 18 months and is still fighting her way back to mental health. And then at the other end of her burnout journey is Kira. She's a career and wellbeing coach who used to work in
2: tech. The middle of my career was in Google. So I spent nearly nine years there. The first seven years I absolutely adored it. I was, you know, totally hooked. It was stressful, but in a way that I kind of thrived on most of the time. But that all changed after my second maternity leave. When I came back, everything felt different. Everything felt harder. While I was there, I wasn't really sure what was wrong. I was like, is this because I have two small kids? Is it because I've I felt like my confidence was totally on the floor, which had never happened to me before. I was tired all the time. I also just found it really hard to deal with the day-to-day stressors of work. Like the job I was doing hadn't changed in any way, but I constantly felt I wasn't doing a good enough job. I was waking up in the middle of the night thinking about work. I had, you know, I'd wake up with sore jaw and clenched fists. Yeah, there was lots of things going on But I wasn't sure what any of it meant, really.
0: The term burnout used in this sort of context was first coined in the 1970s by an American psychologist called Herbert Freudenberger. But what does it mean today to a neuroscientist?
5: Burnout is actually an official occupational syndrome that's recognised by the World Health Organisation,
0: That's Amy Arnston, a neuroscience professor at Yale University who studies the effects of burnout on the brain.
5: And it refers to emotional and cognitive changes, including, and I think one of the things that is focused on is the emotional exhaustion, with symptoms like depersonalization, cynicism, and especially feelings of no longer having personal efficacy, not having control over the situation from chronic occupational stress. And it's really important that this formal definition, it is recognized that this is due to the occupation itself, to the demands of the job, not to a weakness of the person, that it can happen to anyone.
0: And what does it look like for individuals? What symptoms do people tend to describe?
5: A lot of what people talk about is a loss of top-down control over their emotions, attention and thought, and even their actions. So an inability to deal with even small negative emotions that you could normally just suppress. Now they're very irritating, very upsetting, and so you can be acting in ways that are harmful to the situation rather than in a way you wished you could have acted in the cognitive domains, people can have memory deficits, get very forgetful, and also concrete thinking that uh, one is less able to be abstract, to plan ahead. You can be disorganized, impaired concentration and decision making, and a loss of a sense of optimistic future motivation, The ability to be your own cheerleader and say, this is tough, but we can make it through. And instead, an emphasis on the negative and feelings even of despair. And this can be accompanied by loss of self-regulation, loss of inhibitory control. So doing things, saying things that you can regret. Amy explained that there are three
0: main brain regions involved in stress and burnout. First up, the prefrontal cortex. We talked about this bit before in our episode on puberty. It sits just behind our foreheads, and it's the most recently evolved bit of the brain. And it's very important. It's responsible for top-down guidance of our emotions, attention, actions, and thoughts. It allows us to plan for the future, have abstract reasoning, and cheer ourselves on when things get tough. Next up, when it comes to burnout, is the amygdala. You might remember it from our episode on memory. It's evolutionarily a much older brain region, and it's key for orchestrating emotional responses, including what's called conditioned stimuli. That's when something reminds you of an emotional event and can make you feel scared or threatened in response. And finally, there's the striatum which is crucial for our habits and habitual responses. And Amy's lab has seen that stress has dramatic effects on all three regions.
5: My lab has shown that even quite a mild stressor, a very acute mild stress, can take the prefrontal cortex offline, that there are chemical changes that cause prefrontal connections to rapidly disconnect And so this very thoughtful, recently evolved part of our brain is less available for top-down control. And at the same time, stress pathways activate and strengthen the amygdala, which has all the wiring it needs to instantly initiate a stress response. And one of the things it does as part of that is activate the striatum so that our habits are now more easily engaged. So a habitual response to a stressor can rapidly be initiated. That rapid
0: habit response can be a great thing. And it's why people in the military, for example, train at boot camp doing the same thing over and over again. So they automatically know what to do in a stressful emergency. When the prefrontal cortex has gone offline, It's also why we practice fire drills, so your striatum can kick in and automatically perform the habit that was prepared. So it can save our lives in many conditions, but in others it's more complicated. Because it's this same stress habit forming mechanism that might drive someone to drinking too much alcohol, for example, when they've had a stressful day at work, or in my case eating perhaps a few more crisps than
5: originally intended. But there can be wider-reaching consequences, too. And with the COVID pandemic, we could see this even more profoundly, that when you're dealing with an invisible virus, or if it's another kind of threat that's uh, complex, and you really need your prefrontal cortex to understand it and know what to do, having your prefrontal offline in those situations can be particularly disastrous. And that's opposite to something like when you're cut off on the highway, there you're wanting prefrontal offline and your stratum to rapidly come in and have you slam on the brakes. So it really is very context dependent when it's helpful and when not to have this stress response in our brains. During acute stress, Amy explained that we have a huge chemical
0: response in our brains via a flood of so-called catecholamines. These are neurotransmitters called norepinephrine, or noradrenaline, and dopamine, which are released when we have a stressor that makes us feel out of control. And Amy's lab have shown that it's these chemicals that weaken connections between neurons in the prefrontal cortex – They do this by opening potassium ion channels, which then stops the cells from being able to talk to each other. But at the same time, the catecholamines also strengthen the amygdala and the striatum. And then in chronic stress...
5: But then when that continues over and over, it actually leads to loss of grey matter in prefrontal, loss of connections. The cell bodies themselves remain but the connections are gone. And the opposite happens in the amygdala where the connections actually grow. So now something that had been simply chemical actually becomes architectural. It becomes much more ingrained. One of the things that's really intriguing to me that the parts of prefrontal cortex most vulnerable to gray matter loss with chronic stress are also the parts of the brain that allow us to know if somebody's trying to take advantage of us.
6: Mm. It gives us
5: insight about others. So there was a study out of Iowa years ago showing that people with lesions to this area, for example, due to a stroke, We're much more vulnerable to misleading ads, the kinds of advertisements where people are trying to get money out of people Mm. without really giving them whatever they were trying to buy. And this has also been seen in the elderly because we lose grey matter in this part of prefrontal cortex with age as well.
0: It actually sounds like pretty scary stuff, But I do think it fits with our instinct that we shouldn't make big, life-changing decisions when we're stressed out. We're just less likely to be thinking clearly. And Amy told me that from rodent models, it can take as little as two weeks of repeated stress to start seeing those changes in the prefrontal cortex – As for how long it takes to recover those lost connections, it's tricky to study that precisely in humans, but in rodents, it took about as long to recover as the period of stress lasted. For Kira, she took six months off work to recuperate and then spent time in a smaller company in a more relaxed role before ultimately taking another job at another big tech company.
2: And I very quickly after taking that role started to feel the same symptoms again, only far worse this time. I was awake at four o'clock in the morning, like over the simplest thing, I felt totally out of control. I started feeling, along with all of the physical symptoms that I had, including reflux, stomach issues, <laughs> and muscle pain, and with the very little sleep, I started to feel depressed which I had never felt before and in the morning I'd be lying in bed thinking like it's just not worth getting up but it just started to scare me and then there was one week I just could not get up like physically could not get out of bed and really strangely for me I was just like I'm just ringing in sick I don't care anymore that's it and then I went to my doctor actually that was kind of the catalyst at that stage for doing that.
0: And for Siobhan, her catalyst for needing time away came after experiencing some very difficult symptoms.
1: I was having more frequent panic attacks. Sometimes I would be drenching my clothes with sweat before I even arrived to the classroom. I was becoming increasingly argumentative and irritable, particularly with my husband, but with other people too. And then the final straw came when. We had a staff meeting at school and I was really frustrated that we had this meeting right when we had all this work due and I was trying to multitask and listen to the meeting while also get some feedback for students on their final papers and my vice principal came up to me and he pulled me aside and basically admonished me for doing that and telling me it was unprofessional. And in that moment, I felt so overcome with rage that I really thought I might hit or punch. And it was such an absurd thought because I'm 37 and a mom and a teacher. I don't really want physical assault on my list of credentials. It seemed so out of character. And yet the compulsion that I felt to do that really scared me. So I made an appointment immediately with my doctor because I just didn't trust my own ability to make good decisions.
0: Now, a lot of this sounds very physical, and that's because, well, stress does have physical effects,
5: as Amy told me. The brain also regulates our body. The autonomic nervous system and effects on, for example, the heart are controlled by the brain. So burnout actually increases the risk of all sorts of physical conditions. So for example, it's been known to increase the risk of hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and of course, depression and suicide. And Part of this is because the same parts of the brain that are regulating our emotion are also regulating our autonomic nervous system, which affects things like our heart and our lungs. So these things are all linked together.
0: I guess that goes hand in hand with the sort of stereotype of the stressed out businessman who has a heart attack at 50. Exactly.
5: Yes. The key thing seems to be having a sense of control. And that if you have a feeling of lack of control over your work and life, that that is what initiates these stress responses and impairs prefrontal function. But when we age, we're already losing some of our prefrontal connections and getting dysregulation of the stress response. So it's quite likely that older subjects could be more vulnerable. I'm being hypothetical about this based on what we know about animals. But another vulnerable time is teenage years when the animal studies indicate that we have increased dopamine in our prefrontal cortex, and so a lower threshold for a stress response uh, neurochemically.
0: You might remember that we talked a lot about dopamine in our episode on love. Anna called it the chemical of vigour which seems like a big contrast to chronic stress. But Amy explained that it's not as straightforward as having dopamine equals joy. Instead, there are two types of dopamine cells. The dopamine value cells that show increased release in response to pleasurable things and reduced release in response to unpleasant things. And another type called salience dopamine cells. And these are the ones that mainly go to the prefrontal cortex and amygdala. And they respond not only to pleasant events, but also to negative ones too. So you can get this huge flood of dopamine when you've had a bad experience. The thing is, all of this sounds just really harmful and detrimental to the brain overall. So I wondered why would we have evolved to have
5: these kinds of reactions in the first place? Life is stressful for all beings on Earth, especially if you're somebody else's lunch. So having these survival mechanisms built into our brains, it makes sense that these would continue from species to species. And we see that the classic stress response, people talk about fight and flight, but there's also freeze. So I think fight and flight make sense to a lot of people as to how um, those things would save your life. And people have always been confused about, but how does freezing, not moving at all, save your life? Why is that a survival mechanism? And it's because most animals cannot see a stimulus unless it's moving, that their visual systems are different from those in primates. And so they cannot distinguish figure from ground unless the figure moves. Mm. So if a mouse freezes, the hawk can't see it. It's only when the mouse moves that the hawk then can see, oh, that's a mouse, I'm gonna eat it. So there's actually real survival value to not moving at all. I think this is why, though, when people freeze in response to, let's say, being raped or other things where, um, why didn't you fight back? It's because this is a built-in survival mechanism, even if under some conditions it's really unhelpful.
0: And it sounds like, in general, the way we respond to chronic stress even though it's very unpleasant and very difficult, it is actually another way of our brain trying to adapt to the environment that we're in. One other part of that, you mentioned earlier that it can make you more at risk for depression. And some of the symptoms you described, you know, lack of motivation, a feeling of hopelessness and cynicism, that sounds very similar to depression itself.
5: Indeed. So what we find is that the very parts of prefrontal cortex that normally regulate emotion are the ones where we see atrophy. And indeed, there's been imaging studies of people from occupational burnout, where they see that this loss of prefrontal gray matter directly correlates with their inability to downregulate negative emotion. So what's happening then is these structures in our brain that drive depression, the subgenual cingulate, for example, are no longer being suppressed. And so we have a much lower threshold for depression. And it's very important that people get help with that. Cognitive behavioral therapy actually helped in one of these studies. Some medications might help with the regrowth of connections. So basic research has shown that a drug called guanfacine, which is used to treat ADHD, can also protect the prefrontal cortex from stress. And I'm guessing SSRIs might do so as well. So we should have a low threshold for going to a doctor to get help with it.
0: And for Kira, it was medication
2: that allowed her to start
0: feeling better.
2: Up until then, I was very much no, I'm going to go for more walks, and I'm going to do mindfulness, but I just couldn't. I was actually so stressed that. Even the thoughts of doing those things were stressing me out. So yeah, I went on medication and the first couple of weeks were tough, which I was told it would be. But once it kicked in, it was for me just a total game changer. Really, really helped. And then I just remember I just kept saying to my husband and friends and everything, this is what it's like not to constantly be worried about everything all the time. Like I just felt like I had less going on in my head. It just felt, Like, it felt so strange for me after years and years of just constantly having those, you know, negative thoughts in my head that things weren't going to work out, that I was doing badly, that I couldn't handle things,
1: that I was a failure, all of these things.
2: I was like, wow, this is nice. And for Siobhan,
0: she's working hard on her recovery.
1: I was able to access a physician therapist. And what's unique about a physician therapist is that they are able to prescribe and adjust medications while also dealing with the mental health pieces. And I think that's really important since we discuss mental and physical health as though they're separate, but they don't operate separately. They're a complex system. So having someone with an overview of that system is incredibly helpful. And most importantly, she's been there to listen each week steadily and I feel like I can trust her and she's helped me remember that I can do things that my thoughts are not necessarily the truth exercising every day has been really important for me and the thing that I hadn't really put together until she said it was it has to be heavy exercise it has to be pouring sweat so for me going for a nice little mental health walk that's lovely but It's not the same thing to me as like running on a treadmill or lifting heavy weights.
0: Although it was great to hear that Siobhan and Kira both found doctors that could help,
5: Amy did tell me. Ultimately, burnout is really the responsibility of our society, our employers to design things in ways that preserve the human brain.
0: And from some of the parents I spoke to, it seems like sometimes we've created a work culture that makes that extra difficult.
4: I think there was a bit of a blame culture, though that made
2: it harder to to speak up and say you're struggling. There was a culture there of working really hard, taking on things, this constant
1: need of innovation and improving. is an impossible situation and it's impossible to do a good job honestly empathy would have gone a really long way for me
4: there was a sense of you just had to get on with it almost like they were associating
2: anxiety with weakness rather than we all get anxious when i did speak to colleagues at the time or afterwards about how i was feeling everyone was like oh my god that's how i feel amy told me that some professions are more
0: at risk than others including shift workers who don't have adequate sick or vacation days, and those like doctors or teachers, where lots of people are relying on you, which is what happened to Siobhan.
1: Teaching is a tricky profession because on the days that you're not there, you're still spending probably half of the energy of your overall workday preparing to not be there. So you can't just say... I'll just do it tomorrow. It's not a big deal. I'll get to those emails or I'll do the report tomorrow. I'll make up for it. It's not like that. When you have three classes of 45 students that are going to be waiting for you and the person who's coming in has possibly never been to the school, never met the students, doesn't understand the culture and the nuance of these specific clientele and what's allowed and it's a whole thing. It, it's actually a lot more work to be off work, sometimes as a teacher, than just stumbling in when you're ill. It's all well and good to have policies that say, if you're not feeling well, don't come in. But if there's no support around that, it just sounds like empty promises. There was one time where my one-year-old was very, very sick. And I had to take her into the children's hospital. So we were in the emergency waiting room. And while I was there holding my completely lethargic one-year-old, I was fielding 10 emails and three phone calls from a vice principal because the access to one of my Zoom links wasn't working. And I looked around in the hospital waiting room at people who were having possibly for some of them the worst day of their entire lives and I thought at this moment I'm just a commodity I am extremely vulnerable here. I felt let down and I felt like I was letting everyone down all the time.
0: So if you're listening and thinking god that sounds a lot like me I think I'm on that slippery slope downwards what can I do? Well here's Kendra Wilde She's a parent well-being advocate and creator of the podcast series A Little Easier, who got interested in parental burnout after it
6: happened to her. When I started trying to read about parental burnout and understand what this was, I just couldn't believe no one was talking about it. I think there's a lot of shame associated with it and it can happen to anyone. So the sort of the stages and the, the trademarks of parental burnout is obviously it's exhaustion, physical and emotional exhaustion. It's also Feeling ineffective, like whatever you do isn't working. And so it's kind of this trap that the harder you try, the more tired out and burned out you get. And then there's this, this other attribute of it is becoming emotionally detached to find a way to regroup. You seek ways to get away from your kids. And so the relationship suffers because you're trying not to have to deal with them because you're trying to protect yourself. And then ultimately, if it gets pretty severe, You don't recognise yourself. You're not the parent that you want to be.
0: That difficulty staying close to your children is something I heard time and time again from the parents I spoke to.
3: You see your child smiling and you go ah, now I'm here. But the brain at the same time wants to be here and isn't here.
2: It wasn't making me a particularly nice mother to be around. So yeah, that's kind of tough to think about that. When I was at home with the children, if I'm to be honest,
4: I was feeling like I wasn't mindfully with them in the present moment.
3: You're constantly going from work, work, work to now it's daddy-daughter time and you want to get that right somehow.
2: There was also the guilt
4: and everything as well. When you're at work feeling guilty, not at home, but when you're at home feeling, oh my goodness, I need to be doing more work. I need to be doing more work.
1: It all just felt like it was so much that I had to really numb out to cope. And it took a long time to recognize that that's what was happening for me and that that's not how I want to go forward. It's not a healthy coping mechanism. It was a survival mechanism.
6: So if all of this is resonating with you, what can help? Well, you know, there's a range. I just think of whether you're just slightly toasted or completely fried. If you're really at that extreme point where you're worried about how you are as a parent, you don't recognise yourself, it's so important to reach out and get help. But if you're somewhere else along the spectrum, the very first step is to... Believe that you deserve care and attention. So, so many parents feel guilty. Like, I don't deserve to take care of myself. Or a lot of them say, I can't even find a time to take a break. I don't have the time. Or they think, oh, self care is so indulgent or it's expensive. And they have this concept that it has to be big. And so I think the first thing is that A, you deserve it and B, it doesn't have to be big. How are you right now? And what do you need? It could be something really minor. Like, gosh, I haven't had a drink of water all day, or I forgot, I haven't peed for the past hour, even though I need to go. These are basic things where paying attention to your body is crucial. Then I think it's really about building a toolbox that works for you. And it's a very personal thing, like what regulates and restores you. So some of us need to upregulate, we need more energy, some of us need to calm down. And so it's going to be different for each of us. And so whether that means that you're you're recognizing some thought patterns that you have or the triggers that are setting you off so much. Or you might realize that you just really could learn how to do some deep abdominal breathing or just lie down on the floor and put your legs up the wall for for a minute and listen to one song. I took a post-it note and I wrote three things I was going to do for myself that I thought were doable every day. You know, every morning before I make my coffee, I'll drink a glass of lemon water and I feel like we need to flip the lens and stop dishing out more frantic parenting advice and look at like what's going to bolster the caregivers and the adults, the caring adults around these kids.
0: So uh, in terms of tips for parents who might be listening, what advice would you have for them?
6: I think the other big thing is self-compassion. When I first started reading about the science of self-compassion, I thought it sounded Really creepy, actually. <laughs> and sort of sappy, the idea of being kind to yourself. How could that make a difference? We're all kind of shown that if you're hard on yourself, you'll somehow rise to the occasion. And the reality is the opposite is true, that you're, you're just activating the stress response by being hard on yourself. So when I learned that, I started thinking, well, maybe, maybe I could just try talking to myself with a more gentle voice, even if it felt weird. And so I made this little mantra that was kind of based on the research of self-compassion. And I used it when things were really hard in parenting. All the kids are having a meltdown and you think this is impossible. I just want to leave. You're tearing your hair out. You say to yourself, OK, this is hard. Just acknowledging this is hard is validation. Um, then I would say, I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best is means you're only human. You can only do that. Right. And and then I would say, I'm a good parent. And that's an affirmation that maybe you don't even believe, but saying that opens the door to just a new way of relating to yourself. And when we're kinder to ourselves, it it enhances our sense of connection that we're not the only ones suffering. And it also boosts our capacity to care for our kids because it kind of calms us down so that you can kind of have access to your higher brain instead of living in fight or flight. So self-compassion is like a really powerful thing that we can all do that might seem counterintuitive but it's just so worth trying.
0: So beyond then what you know we as individuals can try and do for ourselves are there sort of mm-hmm. bigger systemic issues at play here either at work or in our sort of culture or in our relationships.
6: First of all, it's so important to know it's not just you that this is actually really hard. Being a parent is hard and the systems really aren't there to support us. So the some of the systemic stuff is is huge and it's hard to address, you know, you're just an exhausted individual. Maybe it's not time for you to go out there and try to change the world and campaign for, for childcare. That said, we can each do our small part. And depending on your own interest and capacity, I think it's important to keep speaking up. If we don't come out and say that we're burned out because we're embarrassed and we think that other parents don't burn out and we're, we're lesser somehow, then nobody will ever know what a huge problem it is. You know, there it's, it's really is an, an epidemic. They did a study just a year ago. At the Ohio State University, this was a study on working parents with a job, 66% reported that they were burned out. And then when you looked at the parents who had children with something like ADHD or autism or a suspected mental health issue, the rate was up in the 70s. It was higher. So... Parental burnout is, is huge. You're really not the only one if you're feeling it. And realize that other parents who may be presenting as perfect are actually like those beautiful ducks going across the pond under, under the water. Their feet are like scrambling. That's how we all are. So we need to reach out and find each other.
0: And the other parents I spoke to highlighted a few changes they found helpful, including not being afraid to take time off if you can.
2: Both times taking time off was really, really helpful for me. I applied for a sabbatical.
4: I went to a Zumba class on a Monday morning, and I just was thinking, oh my goodness, I can
2: breathe. The cloud has lifted.
3: I have a gratitude journal, and I have one line a day journal.
2: For me, being out in nature really does, I find it replenishes me and helps me, whether that's gardening or walking.
3: I'm a big meditation guy, so I'm trying to do like at least some meditation, like every day at least a minute.
2: I found that counselling really helped as well. And yeah, I suddenly feel
4: like, wow, I didn't realise how stressed I was. Almost like when you're
0: in it, you can't really analyse it because you just got to get on with it.
2: For Kira, she ended up leaving the tech industry to focus on coaching and... I absolutely adore it. I love it, like my role at the moment or my mission at the moment is to help people navigate work with better confidence, well-being, and clarity. Um, I feel like having that autonomy over what I do and how I work has definitely helped. And for Siobhan, as she
1: works her way through
0: it, she urges people to take it seriously.
1: It's been humbling to learn how much I didn't know about how toxic stress is and how it affects everything. So I think that was a big takeaway for me was like all this talk about reducing stress. It's not just to sell magazines. It's real and there's science behind it. And it's important that we treat it seriously and not as goopy wellness stuff. I want to give a
0: massive thanks to Sasha, Rachel, Kira, Siobhan and all the other parents who spoke to me for this episode as well as Amy Arnston and Kendra Wilde for their expertise. Join us in two weeks time where we'll be exploring the neuroscience of sight. I'm Eva Higginbotham and this is How We're Wired. How We're Wired is a Fresh Air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. It's produced by me, Eva Higginbotham. Follow now for free
3: so you never miss an episode.